So, Mark Colburn, how you doing? I'm very good, my friend. Aslan, thank you. Thank you for introducing me to your beautiful home. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. So I, I met you, very quick introduction about how we met. Um, we met through Pareto People where me and you co-give seminars, I guess, to corporate people about athletes and how, how the athletic world can affect and change the corporate world and, and guide them in a way or give them any kind of inspiration for them to grow themselves through mind, body and spirit. And uh, we did the first event together, actually, ever. That's correct, uh, and, yes. And uh, I got to meet you there. They were talking about you. And uh, what I like to do is I'd like you to introduce yourself, uh, who you are, um, what you're known for. Um, and then we'll dive into all of that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So My please pleasure. go ahead. Yeah, once again, thank you for inviting me in. You know, okay. uh, beautiful sunny morning here in Dubai, you know, which is... Um, yeah, it just feels a real blessing, you know, it really does. So so for your audience, you know, listening to this podcast and maybe, you know, watching it on YouTube, etc. Um, welcome, you know, welcome. And I think my introduction is, is quite simply, I was born and bred, you know, in South Wales in the United Kingdom into a, a working class family. My mum was a caretaker of a small primary school for 20 years, I believe, you know, a long time. And uh, my dad was a crane driver for British Steel. So okay. the steelworks in the UK at the time was obviously a very you know, busy environment, very prosperous business. And uh, That's all in Wales? And that's in Wales, okay. you know, British Steel, even though they have uh, factories all over, you know, the, the UK is now Tata Steel. Oh, it's now okay. Tata. okay. Okay. But back then was, um, was British Steel, British okay. Steel Corporation. Okay. And a great story with my dad, um, my dad left school on the Friday at the age of 15 and then went home, said to his father, which was my grandfather, you know, about finishing school and leaving school. And my grandfather said, right, Monday morning, 5 a.m., you come with me to the steelworks because we're going to get you a job. And my father went there on the Monday morning and he stayed there for 40 years doing the same job as a, as a crane driver. Okay. You know, as a crane driver, because my grandfather was a crane driver. So he stepped, <laughs> he actually stepped into his shoes, you know, when my grandfather then retired, you know. So, uh, so, so yeah. he took over your, your father's job. So my, my father took over my grandfather's job wow. when he retired. All right. Yeah. So, so how many years were they doing it? In so total? My, my grandfather was there for probably in excess of 30 years because he worked in the pit. He worked in the mines, okay. you know back in the sort of 30s, 1930s. Okay. And then my father, um, when he left school, he qualified as a, as a crane driver, as a high level crane driver. Okay. And, uh, and he stayed there for 40 years, you know, did 40 years service doing one job. Wow. And, um, and that was his commitment to his family. You yes. know, my mum and I, I've got no brothers or sisters, you know. Um, but unfortunately, five years before I was born, my mum miscarried uh, twins, okay. so my mum was pregnant, you know, with two, uh, two girls. Okay. And, um, and my parents never thought they could have any more children. You know, that, that was their, their thoughts, you know, in the 60s. Mm. And then I turned up in 1969, 
you know. So to be called the golden child okay. back then was was quite surreal, okay. you know, because my parents never thought that they could have children then, you know, because of my mum miscarrying, yes. you know, two girls. Yeah. So I kept serious stuff in those days. Yeah, it's not a really yeah, serious yeah, stuff yeah. because they did they didn't have the medical treatment, yes. you know, that, yes. that we have today. Yeah. And I kept questioning my mum about my middle name because my middle name is Lee, L-E-E. Okay. okay. And I thought, that's quite strange. Why, why would you, there's nobody in my family called Lee because mm. normally you would get named after somebody in the family. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So my mum then shared the story about miscarrying, you know, two girls, twins, okay. Okay. which was, you know, in, an incredible feeling for me thinking well you know if i have children maybe i could have twins yes how cool would that be yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and my mum said that when she fell pregnant then with me that if i was going to be born a girl they were going to call me leanne okay hence the middle name okay you know okay and i think when i um when i then left school and i started this i went to college to study sports science and it gave me an insight into you know what the human body really needed mm -hmm. to become better than yeah. what it was yesterday yeah. you know phytonutrients micro macronutrients yes. you know fluid sorry you know, but what year is that We're this talking. is 1986 87 because okay. things have dramatically changed oh, a bit. but yeah, yeah, yeah light yeah. years ahead now yeah, yeah, you know yeah. now you're at, now you're in university and what's next I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And the reason for going to study sports science was to become a physical education teacher. I wanted to teach people. I wanted to help people. Because the town that I grew up in in South Wales has a very famous person who unfortunately passed away in 1949 called Aniron Bevan. And Aniron Bevan was a Labour politician. He was the health minister in the UK. And he's the gentleman that founded the actual NHS, the National Health Service oh, wow. in the UK. Okay. He was from the town where I grew up. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of um, history, you know, from Tredega, which is the town I grew up in, because of an Iron Bevan, because of this gentleman who, 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 who formulated this service that we now know today mm. as the National Health Service. Yeah. One and of I, the best health services in the world. Yeah. Possibly, yeah, yeah, possibly. And my point is that that man had a vision. Think about how many lives he's improved crazy. or saved from having that vision. I just got goosebumps, yeah, crazy. Uh, 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 tens of millions. Yeah, I just said legacy, that's the first word I thought of. Like, tens what of millions, a, what a, you know. What a legacy to leave behind. And just very quickly for your audience to give you an insight into what he did and how he did it, was back in um, South Wales, you know, in the 30s and 40s, there was lots of men getting injured you know, obviously through the war and obviously, you know, through the, the heavy industries. Mm. And when those men then had an injury and they had to go and have treatment, they didn't have the finances to pay for the treatment. Okay. So somebody could have a broken arm or a finger cut off in, in, in the, in the coal mines. Okay. So what Aniron Bevan designed was a facility where people would pay a very small amount. I'm talking like maybe five dirhams. Okay, or maybe even one dirham every week out of your salary that goes into a pot, into a kitty, okay, or into a fund. And that fund just sits there. And when somebody then who's working in, in the pit or the mine has an injury, that fund will then pay for the treatment. Because mm. back then the treatment had to be paid for and it was unreliable. Mm. Okay. 
So what Anairam Bevan then decided to do was to formulate that system and roll it out right throughout the UK because it was heavy industries all through the UK, mm. you know, at the time. And I'll never forget, just to finish, him, and I've seen this, um, this statement a few times now, that he stood on the steps of the local, um, I think it was the Labour Club, and he said, this system works. We need to tradigarize the whole of the UK. We need to roll this oh, out. So he started from from the from your town, like from, yeah. and expanded. Okay, yeah, literally Amazing. from Tradiga. Amazing, which know? like population at that time would be five thousand people. Oh wow, tiny. Wow, tiny. Yeah, into the nation, into the whole nation. And now sixty three sixty three million people in the UK use the. the That's NHS. a crazy story, man. It's incredible, man. Just I, I I'm always very interested in this um, in the concept of manifestation and how mm. people manifest this kind of systems and, and countries and yeah. whatever, like these crazy manifestations from just a, yeah. a, an, ish, an initial thought. And people underestimate how powerful our thoughts are. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, okay. so all through the 70s and the 80s, I kept hearing this person's name, Aniron Bevan, Aniron Bevan. I kept saying to my parents, you know, who's this guy? Everybody's talking about him. Unfortunately, he passed away, you know, 10 years before I was born. Um, and yet, even now, his, his legacy lives on, you know. So I feel very proud that I've come from a great, a great environment, you know, in South Wales. Certainly wonderful parents. You know, my mum was a hardworking lady. My dad, you know, as I said, worked in the steelworks uh, for 40 years. He was known as Mr. Nice Guy. Okay. You know, he was a true gentleman through and through. And, uh, and I guess, you know, back then I had the opportunity, as I said, to be free to run the streets, ride my bike with, with no pressure, you know, with, with no anxiety or pressure. And I think that then formulated me into the person I was into my teenage life and then college. And then I got married at the age of 21. You know, I fell in love with a young lady and we got married and I started working, you know, as a designer actually. And we spoke about oh, this no earlier okay. on, yeah. Right. So I designed stained glass, you know, for 10 years. Oh, cool, all right. And- uh, That's very niche. Yeah, okay. so, so that 10 year career allowed my wife and I then to buy a house. And then my daughter, Jessica, you know, um, was born in 1994. Hi, Jessica. You know, yes, Jessica's probably <laughs> gonna watch this. She's probably listened to a thousand of these podcasts, but, that moment then gave me the cathartical feeling of being a parent, you know, and that was, um, that was a wonderful feeling, you know, it was an amazing gift, you know, um, you know, for, for us to have Jessica. How old were you when you, you know, had Jessica? I was 24. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 24 and a uh, very young parent, yeah. you know, but, but, I felt confident to take on the responsibility mm. of being a parent, mm -hmm. you know, back then. And, uh, and still today, you know, my daughter's 28 now, I still feel very proud. You know, she's not a, even though she's not a little girl anymore, I suppose, you know, she'll always be my little girl, mm -hmm. you know, but she's now six foot tall. You know, she looks not like- Not so little. Not so little. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like Kate Middleton. I saw the picture, I'm like, yes, wow. Yeah, you she had looks, to like stand up straight too. <laughs> yeah, she, she looks like a Hollywood actress, you know, she's very glamorous, sure. very beautiful. Yeah. But the important thing for me is that she's grounded. Yes. You know, she's got a great heart, strong, strong heart. Um, so yeah, so, so that, you know, that part of my life, the 10 year period of designing, 
just loving the working environment, you know, okay. just taking that athlete mindset into the working environment, mm. you know, always driven, always on time, never late, mm. always hit my targets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then in, uh, in the, into the 2000s then, you know, my ex-wife and I almost sort of grew apart, mm. you know, I think because even though, yeah, even though change will always happen, people change, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever reason, yes. you know. And we decided to, you know, agree to get divorced. So, you know, I went one way and she went the other, um, knowing that I would miss my daughter. You know, that was the compromise. So your daughter stayed you with know. her. So, yeah. So Jessica stayed with her mum. Okay. You know, Jessica was only 10 at the time. And that allowed me then to move to Cardiff, you know, which is the capital of Wales with my work. Um, the job I had, I was a, a senior accounts manager at the time. And that then allowed me to do two things, I guess, you know, uh, mature, you know, as, as an adult. And I was, you know, almost uh, 30, what was I, 38 then? And, and it gave me the opportunity to see life in a, in a city. Because remember, I've come from a very, very mm -hmm. small mining town, mm -hmm. you know. And How was that? The, the, that the, move. The, because yeah. I mean, it's not just the move, it's the move, you're recently divorced, you just left your family, it's a complete shift. It's not just just a, a, a at, minor like at, move. At the know? time, it was a challenge. Okay, okay. Tell, uh, tell me why. Yeah, and I think I, I've always had that inert feeling to enjoy any challenge, having self-belief, self-confidence, to step into the unknown, you know, and I've mm. always had that ever since I was a child. And I think going into the city every day was a challenge, mm. you know? So every day I had that dopamine hit, you know, the feelings of being in a big city with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people rather than five or 6,000 people. <laughs> and what I also really enjoyed was the feeling then of being able to do more sport, you know, more activity, started to race triathlon regularly. I became a keen rock climber. Mm. So that door opened to, to almost live, it sounds selfish, almost a, a single man's life, mm -hmm. you know, because remember I got married very young, you know, my commitment was to my family, you know, and, and then in 2008, I had this, almost this epiphany to, to want to learn how to paraglide mm -hmm. because I've always wanted ever since I was a small child, and maybe some of your audience can relate to this. I always wanted that feeling of Peter Pan. Yeah. The ability to Absolutely. fly. Okay. And many people may say, yeah, okay, I get that. I, I, I had that feeling. Is it my uh, my favorite know. movie of all time is Hook. Have you ever seen that yes, movie? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's yes. my favorite movie of all time. I, I, it's, it really inspires me for that reason. It's yeah. just like that, that dreaming and manifesting and being able to dream a world into, into existence. Okay. Mm. So, 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 so those feelings and people, you know, people have asked me many, many times, you know, why paragliding? Okay. And I take them back to when I was about 10 years of age and my late father said to me, you know, about the, the journey of life. Okay. The process of life that we are born, we live and we pass on. That's it. That's the reality of life. Okay. Mm. As a live enzymatic living organism, we have a shelf life, mm -hmm. unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it was quite, um, it was quite upsetting for me at the age of 10 to be told that, mm -hmm. you know, it was, 
it was a huge bolt of lightning because I thought we live forever. Mm. I thought there was going to be a million Christmases and a million birthdays, you know, I just maybe just wasn't really, you know, open enough to accept it maybe at, at a young age, yeah. you know. And I'll never forget my dad, you know, saying to me that we have to look after ourselves because of course, one day in the future, tomorrow will be your last day. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? Well, what do you mean by that? And then he explained the process, you know. And at 10, that's... A, I was 10, 10 or 11. That's quite a, quite a, quite an intense conversation to have at 10. I think my dad shared that information with me for two reasons. One, because as I've explained, I didn't have a stop button. Yeah. Okay. And my dad shared this information with me for my benefit. Yes, absolutely. To I calm me down, it. slow me down, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I didn't injure myself. Yeah. You know. And um, and I think it was just the realization of sharing that information and that knowledge to know what was ahead of me, you know, the life when you become an adult, etc. you know. And he said to me, I'll never forget, you know, these words that in life, whatever we work hard for, we only borrow. So the house, the car, the shoes, the watch, the holiday home, okay, all of these materialistic things we work really hard for to enjoy. But then when we pass on, we give the, we give all these things back. So we only look after them for a short period of time. Okay. However, what we do take with us when we do pass on is the memories, the feelings, the experiences, the friendships. That's what we take with us to the grave. And I'll never forget sitting in my dad's kitchen and thinking to myself, he's got a point here. It was a logical, a logical conversation, you know? So that tied into the experience of flying? 100%. Okay. 100% because, you know, I I'd bought the house, I'd had the company car, the big salary, you know, all the bells and whistles mm -hmm. as they call it. And yet the one thing that I wasn't gathering or I wasn't compiling was experiences, friendships, mm -hmm. memories. Mm -hmm. You know, I was too driven on work, 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 yes. work, work, you know. Yes. And how, how old were you by then when, when that all hit you really as in what you're saying now? Is that your whole life you've been working, 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 and now you need to think of your experiences? I think initially I'd, I'd had those thoughts in the back of my mind. Yes, of course. But, but I, I, wasn't, in there. I wasn't open enough to myself yes. to let those feelings in, let those thoughts in. Yeah. You know? the, the reason I'm asking you that is because almost, I would say, 85% of my clients that I, that I work with come to see me for that reason is mm -hmm. that they've been in the rat race and what we've all been taught to be how you, how you get to joy, how you achieve joy, which is, you know, climb up the ladder, become more successful by the material things, the bells and the whistles, mm -hmm. like you're saying. And then at some point you get to the point where you realize none of this is really bringing me joy or happiness that I was 100%. promised. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So yeah. that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in that moment. Like mm -hmm. when you decided that, you know, flying for mm -hmm. you is something that you would like to experience. And you've been thinking about it for a very long time, maybe yeah. in the back of your head, in front of your head. Was there like a, 
a moment or was it just a, a, an accumulation of things or when did you arrive at that at that moment where you thought I need to experience life now? I, I think it was definitely more so when I moved to Cardiff, okay. which is 2006, 2007. And then when I qualified as a paragliding pilot in 2008, then I thought to myself, well, if I can gather these experiences, what else can I gather? Mm. You know, what else can I enjoy? Mm. And, and those feelings, even though they'd been with me, you know, probably all my life, I was never honest enough with myself to let those thoughts and feelings in, mm. if that makes sense, mm. you know? And there's a great poem that I recite now as a speaker, and it's called The Man in the Glass. And it talks about being honest with yourself. Because as human beings, we can, I suppose we can lie to our friends, we can lie to our family, we can lie to our kids and our dogs. But you cannot run the risk of lying to yourself, you know. And, um, and that, that was the wake-up call for me, you know, the reality of life mm. and how short life actually really could be mm. which then led me into 2009 when you know we were flying paragliding over south wales in may 2009 and just enjoying a beautiful bank holiday weekend just another normal another normal saturday you know when we were flying beautiful sunny afternoon and uh, we'd probably had about four and a half maybe five hours flight time you know, with the club that I was part of. And there were about 20 of us flying that day. And then about 5 p.m., one of my friends said to me when we were just sat on the on the hillside, just having a just having a cold drink and a chat, you know. And he said to me, Should we go back up? Now that's paragliding, right? So no engine. Just explain that uh, really quickly. So a paragliding canopy is like a parachute that you can actually steer. Mm. Okay, so it has pockets throughout the canopy mm -hmm. that fill up with air when you have a headwind. Mm. And then when you take off and your feet leave the floor, that's when you can actually steer, mm. you know, the, the canopy and you can, you know, obviously increase or decrease, you know, your altitude. Mm. So there's no engine, there's nothing. No engine. That's, that's called paramotoring. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, 5 PM, you know, we had this conversation and, uh, my friend said, shall we go back up? because we've got about an hour left before the sun sets and the wind drops and that's the end of flying, you know, mm. for the day. So I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. So we're flying across the top ridge, you know, above the peninsula, maybe 15 meters above the ground, above the grass. And I turned the, the, the actual paragliding canopy at sort of 90 degrees to my left to face, uh, to face the Irish Sea. And I flew into what is known as a crosswind. Now to give your audience an analogy, a crosswind is two airstreams that fight for the same space. Okay? okay. And as I flew into the crosswind, I didn't even know it was there. Couldn't see it, couldn't feel it, you know? And it basically, you know, it just blew the canopy, it just blew the canopy out, you know, this sort of 25 foot of, you know, paragliding, you know, canopy. Um, nylon canopy, it just it just completely blew it out, you know. So to have a full collapse, 15 meters above the ground, well, you know, there's only one there's only one way you go in, uh, thanks to gravity, you know, mm. and that's straight down. So within 
you know, half a second, I'm looking at the grass, just seeing the grass coming up at a rate of knots and almost then just preparing myself, you know, to hit the, hit the grass, hit the floor, you know. And as I hit the floor, feet first, you know, which was probably bad enough, the, the canopy reinflated because of the swirl of the, you know, of the breeze across the top ridge. And I got dragged for probably about 100 meters, you know, uncontrollably, fully conscious. And it, it just felt like being a rag doll in a washing machine, you know, just couldn't stop it. And, uh, and even to this day, you know, we're 13 years on now, I can still see, you know, the grass and the sky, you know, before my very eyes. Um, and, 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 and it happened so quick that I didn't feel scared if that makes sense. You know, I wasn't in a, in, a, in a sense of being frightened because everything happened within five, six, seven mm. seconds, you know. Mm. So when I finally stopped being dragged, I'm lying on the floor, and the first thing that they teach you in paragliding, if you have a fall or you, you know, if you collapse, is to pull in the lines, which were the lines that you were concerned mm. about with paramotoring. And I'm lying on the floor and I thought, right, I'll just pull in the lines now, because I'm in no pain. Okay, I'm in no pain, I've just fell. At all. Zero. So as I tried to sit up, I thought to myself, why can't I sit up? I must be caught, maybe my flying jacket is caught on something on the grass, you know? Because it was literally like I'd been Velcroed to the floor. Mm. So I'm trying to pull in the lines and I can't even sit up. And I thought to myself, why can't I sit up? That, that's really odd, you know? My brain just wasn't functioning. And still no pain? No pain. Zero. And I looked down my body and both my legs were twisted like pipe cleaners around each other. And I thought, oh dear, why can't I move my legs? There's no pain, there's no movement, but I'm looking at my legs almost like they're not mine because they were literally twisted over each other mm. like pipe cleaners, you know? And I thought... Oh my gosh, I think I broke both my legs. That was my first thought, you know, from what I'd seen. And at this point, I just thought I need to lie back. I need to just rest and just try to put myself into the recovery position just in case I pass out and I vomit because I could choke literally on my own vomit, you know. You and had all of these thoughts. Yeah, but it's part of your training. Okay. It's part of your training, obviously, okay. if, if you have an accident of what to do. Okay. And I'm lying on the floor and I can't even turn over on my side because there's no movement and yet there's no pain. And I kept thinking, why, why can't I do these things? That's very, it, like a very... It's confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. scary, but yeah. really confusing, yeah. you know? So one of the gentlemen who was part of the paragliding club, he saw me crash. So he looped down you know, from probably 300 feet above me, looped down, landed, you know, safely, unclipped his harness and ran over as quick as he possibly could. And he's standing over me and he's, he's just looking at me in disbelief. Shocked, yeah. And he says to me, are you still alive? I said, yeah, but I, I, I can't feel my legs. That's the first thing he said to you. Are you still alive? Wow. Because I'm blinking. Okay. okay. You know, I'm blinking, but I'm not screaming because I'm not in pain. I'm not, you know, shouting. I'm not in panic mode. And, uh, and he says to me, sorry, I said, I, I can't feel my legs. 
So this guy who was an ex-special forces sergeant major, okay, in, in the, you know, the British army, he radioed for the Wales Air Ambulance, you know, immediately, because he knew I'd done something pretty, pretty serious, you know. And, and then he sort of, you know, led down next to me and he just spoke to me and kept me calm. And just, you know, just to give me that sort of peace of mind that help was on the way. And thankfully, about 10 or 11 minutes later, I could hear the helicopter coming in over the top of the mountain, you know. So that evening, being, you know, airlifted into hospital and being told that night, you know, that I'd broken my back. So, so just one second, I'd, I'd like to, to, to get this clear. You were airlifted directly to the hospital. Mm-hmm. At no point you lost consciousness. Nope. You were conscious the whole time until you got to the hospital. In the hospital, you were conscious until you saw a doctor, I'm guessing, and they did the tests and everything, right? Yeah, so I had an MRI, okay. I had an x-ray, okay. and then told that evening that I'd, I'd broken my back at what they call T12, or okay. thoracic level 12. Yes. And basically I had what they call a thoracic fracture. Okay. So when my, when my body hit the floor, feet first, my whole body compressed mm. and the center part around sort of belly button level, you know, to give your audience um, an insight, that was the part that compressed mm. and basically the vertebrae split. Okay. So it was a clean break? It's a fracture. Okay. Yeah, a thoracic fracture. Okay. And what that then left me with is basically lower leg paralysis okay. because of the spinal cord damage, even though thankfully the spinal cord was still intact. Okay. Okay. It was damaged through the fragments of the vertebrae, you know, splitting. Mm. And, and then having, you know, that spinal, um, that spinal operation, you know, having had six pins inserted into my spine through T10, T11 and L1, that then as a fixation fixed my back. So it could then fuse, you know, the vertebrae could then fuse back together over, you know, over a period of years, probably, you know. Um, so to be left with lower leg paralysis, with only half of my legs working, um, was, yeah, was, was a new, a new life, you know, should I say? So you heard that, you heard, you heard all that news on the first night? Not necessarily the first night. You know, the, the first month for me was, I suppose, a, a, a time in my life where it was very blurry. Mm. You know, obviously I'm up to my eyeballs in drugs, yes. morphine, yes. Uh, amitriptyline, you know, all of the, the nerve drugs that you're given. Yeah. And, and I think it was probably going into month three where I'd, I'd spent, you know, 94 days on my back just staring at the ceiling with mm. no movement no feeling, no pain, thankfully. Mm. And just kept thinking to myself, well, this is probably the end, isn't it? You know, because as human beings, you know, we have this wonderful gift called patience. Mm. Just be, my parents used to say it, oh, just be patient. Just take your time, just be patient, you know, let mother nature take its course. And I thought after three months, I, I can't see me ever leaving this hospital. I can never see me getting out of this bed you know, but thankfully, you know, after sort of three and a half months, um, they hoisted me out of the bed, you know, and then they gave me one of these uh, walking frames, mm. you know, um, just to identify, you know, even if I could walk, you know, um, 
And, and that moment then of going into the rehabilitation gym with the physiotherapists, you know, with the, the wonderful staff gave me the appreciation and gratitude of what, you know, an iron Bevan had done 60 years or 50 years earlier, you know, um, so that was that. Yeah, that was just the start. That was just the start of the rehabilitation. What, what was that moment you like? Know? The moment they they sat you up and took you to to the the, the first the, the first moment they took me out of um, out of the hospital bed. They actually then put me into a wheelchair. So I was in a wheelchair for about three or four weeks. But they give you the walking frame to ensure that you can actually then be functional. Okay, because the body, the body wants to move, it loves to move, but our brains tell us we don't want to move. Mm. We all want to live in the comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Protection, you know? yeah. Protection, yeah. you know. Um, so when they hoisted me out of the hospital bed, they took me then for a shower because, you know, I'd been bed bathed for three and a half mm. months, you know. And I'll never forget being in the, you know, in the shower area on my own, just, in, you know, sitting in this waterproof wheelchair and just crying just allowing all those feelings and emotions, you know, that I'd probably bottled up, mm. you know, for a, a number of months. What was going on in, you your, know? in your mind at that moment? I think it was a sense of relief. Mm. I'm finally out of that bed. Okay. You know, imagine that feeling of being in somewhere that you can't get out of. Mm. And I'll use COVID, use the pandemic as an example, mm. when people were told that they have to stay in mm. for days and weeks, sometimes even months you know, without leaving that environment. Um, and, and that's, that's difficult for any human being, mm -hmm. you know? So to leave the hospital bed, to go into the shower, to have that feeling of freedom once again, you know, emotionally was, um, yeah, it was overwhelming, you know, it really was. And then after maybe four months, you know, of being in the hospital and, and everything just took so long you know, in terms of leaving the bed and then having the wheelchair and the frame and the crutches. And I think I just, I just almost ran out of patience, you know, because I wanted to get well, I wanted to leave, I wanted to go back to work and have a life again, you know. And after I think maybe four months, my parents came to visit me in hospital one night and they, they came to visit me literally every day, you know, and I'm so grateful. And the one evening, they'd been there for about an hour, and my mum said to my dad, I'm just gonna nip to the bathroom, okay? I'm just gonna use the bathroom, and then we'll, we'll, we'll leave, because it's like 8 p.m. So my mum went to the bathroom, and my, my, my late father pulled up the chair, pulled up the chair next to me, and he says to me, listen to me now. I said, of course, what, what's wrong? And he, he literally sat really close to me, and he caught hold of my T-shirt, okay? Now, my dad was a gentleman, remember? Never an aggressive person. And he caught hold of my T-shirt. And he said, you listen to me now. You stop upsetting your mum. You stop upsetting me. You stop upsetting yourself because you're going to get through this. I said, what? He said, you're going to get through this. I said, dad, I've broke my back. I said, how the hell am I ever going to go back to work? Okay, how am I going to drive again? How am I going to walk again, run again, cycle again? All of the, the life that I had, you know? And I'd almost given up, thinking it, it would never be possible that I could do all these things ever again, you know? 
And he said, you're going to get through this because you're a winner. Are you listening to me now? Now pull yourself together and don't tell your mum we've had this conversation because <laughs> she'd probably kill him, you know? <laughs> so my mum arrived back from the bathroom and then obviously they, you know, they went home. And, and that moment for me was the pattern interrupt mm. that I needed to take me out of the mindset I was in you know, the, the defeatist poor me, you know, mm. um, to give me the realization of who I really was as, as a human warrior, mm. you know, and we, we all have it in many different levels, you know. So I left hospital after six months, you know, and I started, you know, walking with crutches. I did my driving test again, you know, even though both my feet don't work. So, so just, just so that we understand and, and, uh, and, and the viewers and listeners understand what does that mean? So what, what, what are you, what is functioning and what is not functioning now? So in my legs, if you think of all of the muscles that you use functionally to walk, okay. So you've got your glutes, which is your bum muscles. Mm -hmm. You've got your hamstrings, mm -hmm. you've got your calf muscles mm -hmm. and then your feet. Yes. So they are your drivers, your primary drivers. Okay. And then your secondary drivers are your quads and your hip flexors. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you've got micro muscles as well, but I've been left with lower leg paralysis, which basically means that my glutes, hamstrings, calves, and feet don't work. Zero. Zero. Okay. So there's no muscle. Until today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even okay. now, 13 and a half years on. Okay. okay. So it's all due to nerve damage in my spinal cord that send those messages to the muscle. So the muscles are still there. Okay. Okay. But they've just withered away. Yeah, atrophy, because yeah. they, they don't fire, they don't yeah. work, yeah, yeah. okay? So what that then allowed me to do when I started, you know, walking with crutches was using my secondary muscles, my quads and my hip flexors to do the work of the primary muscles. Mm. And it took maybe 12 months or so, mm. you know, for those muscles to work mm. and function, become functional and then get stronger, mm. okay? So even when I'm driving now, you know, I use my quads and my hip flexors for all of the controls that you would normally use your calves and your, your calf muscles and your feet for, mm. you know? So it's just retraining. Yeah. That's relearning. Relearning. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. But when, when you started your, your therapy, were these muscles also atrophied because you were on bed, you were in bed, you were bedridden and using, using wheelchairs and stuff like that. So they were also, they also needed to be retrained and, yeah, and yeah. Okay. E even the muscles that weren't affected, you know, they, they needed to then be retrained mm. to gain strength mm. and functionality once okay. again, you okay. know. Okay. So what that allowed me to do then was leave hospital, pass my driving test, told my boss I wasn't going to go back to work because I wasn't ready. You know, I was just honest with myself. And as part of the rehabilitation in hospital, they sat me on one of the indoor bikes you know, like a Watt bike or like a Peloton bike. And they wanted me to, you know, turn the pedals just to get my heart, you know, pumping, get the blood pumped around my body. And I'll never forget saying to the, um, the physio, I can't pedal because my feet don't work. Because if I push on the pedals, my feet are going to slide off. Okay. Which is, you know, it, it's quite dangerous. So they bandaged my feet to the oh, pedals. Okay. Okay. So that was my very first experience of marginal gains. Okay. To, to, to think logically, not emotionally. You yes. Know? 
And, and that's what I did, you know, in hospital for a, a number of weeks, you know, bandage my feet and just push and pull on the pedals. So my point is that when I then left hospital, I the first thing I did within two months was to get my bike out of the garage and literally get my cycling shoes, clip in, and then literally start to push and pull. So in the very beginning, the very early days, I actually used to tape, you know, my, my ankles into a fixed position. Mm. Okay. And that then allowed me to, you know, push and pull on the pedals just mm. to get movement, mm. you know? So I started cycling and, and just knowing in my head and my heart that if I got myself fit and strong again, maybe then maybe I can just have a better life than what I did have, you know, after I left hospital. So that then led, led me into, you know, the environment of disabled cycling or what they call paracycling and met a great cycling coach from South Wales called Neil Smith. And, you know, even just general cycling for me was better than just sitting in the house doing nothing. Remember the dopamine, remember the passion, remember the, the craving, you know, for this feeling that we get every day. And I'll never forget, you know, meeting Neil Smith and, you know, I, even then, you know, this is 2010 and Neil saying to me, you know, yes, you have a disability, you know, but I can teach you how to cycle to enjoy health and fitness. So then one day out of the blue, Neil said to me, look, we've got a race in a few months time in Wales. Okay. It's an international cycling race in the velodrome. Would you like to enter? In the velodrome? In the velodrome. Wow. That's a whole different. Whole new ball game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So immediately I said to Neil, yep, I'd love to do it. Remember the experiences, feelings, memories, friendships. So I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it, you know. So I trained for, you know, five or six months, won both races in the velodrome. And- uh, That's paracycling. That's paracycling, okay. yeah, on the track. And uh, and as I said, this is 2010. So Facebook had literally just started, you know. So I'll never forget, you know, putting these results on Facebook, you know, with my two, you know, my two medals, you know. And, um, and the gentleman who treated me on the day of my crash from the paramedics, the Wales Air Ambulance, a lovely guy called Ross Griffin, we'd connected on Facebook, you know, became friends still to this day. I'm very grateful for, for the service he gave and the work he did to save my life, you know, that afternoon. So he messaged me and he said, oh, congratulations. I'm really proud of you, you know, winning these two races, you know, you've done really well literally only one year after my accident. And there's all these famous people there who are raising money for the air ambulance, you know, and, uh, and we set off and it was 84 miles over the national park, Brecon beacons in Wales. And it was an amazing day. You know, it, remember working class me, little old me, Margaret's boy is now in the company of all these famous rugby players, Olympic athletes, you know, so we finished the first day. And I've, I've had a shower, I've had my sports massage, I'm just having my food, you know, just keeping myself to myself. And I received a tap on the shoulder and I turns around and there's a gentleman stood behind me. He's about 110 kilos and he looks like Hercules. Okay, this guy's huge. And he says to me, excuse me, um, when you finish your food, I'd like a quiet word with you outside. And he walked off. 
I had that squeaky bum moment, okay? <laughs> I thought to myself, maybe if before the accident I could have had some kind of shot, but right now I don't I, know. I've, I've never been a fighter. I've never been a fighter, okay? But I thought to myself two things. I'm going to finish my food because tomorrow we have to ride 70 miles, okay, through Wales to the next town. And I'm going to take my crutches just in case. <laughs> Because this guy was huge, okay? So I goes outside and having studied psychology, you know, a long, long time ago, I looked at this guy's body language and he stood there just in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, you know, with his arms folded, you know? So I walks up to him very slowly. I said, can I help you? Hmm. What's wrong with your legs? I said, sorry. He said, what's wrong with your legs? I said, well, I've got lower leg paralysis. Oh, okay, so what have you done? I said, well, I broke my back, you know, 12 months ago, literally, or 13 months ago, 12 or 13 months ago. Hmm, that's interesting. So what did you break, T10, T11? I said, well, actually, T12. I said, how, how, how did you know that? He said, well, you've got drop foot, haven't you? Which basically means both my feet don't work. I said, yeah, that's correct. Mm. What about your hamstrings? I said, no, they don't work. What about your glutes? No, they don't work. Oh, okay. So how the hell are you cycling? I said, I, I, I've no idea, but I can. You know, I don't think too much about it, but I can. So this conversation went on for about 20 minutes. And after the 20 minutes, this gentleman says to me, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, of course. He said, what do you do? I said, well, I was a senior accounts manager. I worked in Cardiff, company car, big salary, you know. He said, no, 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 no. My question is, what do you do now? I said, well, I'm just on benefits, just getting myself fit and active again, you know, to maybe go back to work, maybe. I said, why do you ask that? He said, well, I'd like to know, are you training for the London 2012 Paralympic Games in two years' time? Because this was June 2010. Hmm. I said, the Paralympics? No. Why the hell would I train for but the Paralympics? Before that, that never crossed your mind. Ever. Zero. Okay. I said, why the Paralympics? He said, because I think you should. And that was it. The light bulb moment went off. That's it, that moment. And no I hesitation. just thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> what if? Just what if? Mm. I now have two years because I knew London 2012 was going to happen, the Olympics and Paralympics. But maybe, just maybe, what if I could get there? Just get there. You know, forget winning medals. What if I could be part of history? How cool would that be? So I gave this guy a hug and I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah, of course. I said, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, who are you? He said, uh, my name is Dr. Ben Matthews. I'm a chiropractor from Cardiff, so I understand what's going on in your body, you know? So I said, well, thank you. Okay, thank you. And we literally just left it at that, okay? So we finished the ride for the week. We raised, you know, 25,000 pounds for the air ambulance, you know, which is an amazing, you know, incredible opportunity to give back. And I'll never forget going home that Saturday evening because I was back living with my parents. 
and saying to my my parents that I was going to start to train, you know, for the London 2012 Paralympic Games, you know. And my late mum said to me, oh, good luck. What would you like to eat? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> and my dad said to me, para what? I said, you know, the, the Paralympics in two years' time, you know, in London. I'm going to start training to to maybe, maybe even just be part of it, you know? Mm. And my dad said, Mark, come here. Don't be so foolish. Just go back to work. Mm. You're 41 years of age. Just go back to work, you know. Put this Olympic, Paralympic dream behind you because ever since I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be a champion in, in whatever sport. Why? I don't know. I always had uh, Daley Thompson as my inspiration, mm. you know. Even though my dad was my hero, Daley Thompson was, you know, this incredible inspiration. Very, very quickly, just tell the viewers who Daley Thompson is. So Daley Thompson was a, an Olympic decathlete, you know, for Great Britain in 1980 and 1984. And this guy was world-class, not just at one event, but possibly all 10. Mm. You know, he was an incredible all-rounder, mm. you know, he really was. So I, I looked up to him. You know, when I was, uh, you know, when I was sort of that 10, 11 years of age, you know, and um, and I said to my dad, I said, you know what, dad, I, I've got to do this. Okay, I've got to do this because all my life as a child, you know, growing up, you always instilled into me that if you have a dream, whatever that dream is, never give up mm. until your eyes close for good. Never give up. Okay. He said, Mark, come on. You're 41, just go back to work, please, you know. And I think the reason why he said that, Arsalan, was he knew that if I committed, there was no going back, mm. okay, no going back. And he was probably more concerned about me, you know, than, than ever, because, you know, just broke my back, mm. got pins in my back, I'm now disabled for life, and yet this mindset, thankfully, that weren't wasn't affected, And he said to me, Mark, please just, you know, be kind to yourself, you know, just, just let it go. And I said, dad, come here. I said, I'm doing this with or without you. I love you unconditionally. I will always love you unconditionally and my mum, but I'm doing this with or without you. Now you either get on the bus with me, <laughs> you know, or get off and get out of my way. And I was serious, you know, he said, oh, do whatever you want. But I mean, that's that's you know. that's the attitude for for greatness. At the end of the day, I mean, there's so many times that people are gonna doubt or people are gonna, you know, for whatever reason it is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is for you. Sometimes it's whatever reason that they have in their hearts. We'll never know. But it's that unwavering decision that mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about. It's mm -hmm. that decision that you make. That intention. I have an intention. And no matter what happens, I'm going in that. And and that's the kind of the the start of it all, isn't it? Like the start of 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 the journey to 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 uh, to success is that intention, that, that the decision you make at the beginning. I think the game changer for me was knowing that London was two years away. It was only going to happen once. I was 41. I probably would never have another chance. Mm. You know. And London was going to happen with or without me. Mm. And if I was going to be successful, it'd be down to me. Yeah. If I was going to fail, it'd be down to me. So yes. I had to do everything in my power 
with the people around me to ensure that I did everything to get there. If I did everything and I didn't get there, that's okay. Yeah, fair enough. That's okay. But at least I know I could have got to August 2012 and had no regrets. You know? Yes. So my father said to me, oh, do whatever you want. <laughs> do whatever you want. So I spoke to Neil Smith, who was my cycling coach at the time, and we committed, you know, to get me into British cycling. That was the first part of the process. And I'll never forget Neil sharing a, a brilliant story with me that he, he called British Cycling and spoke to the head coach and said, look, I've got this athlete. He's, uh, he's a C1 category. He's 41, so he's no spring chicken, but he's powerful. He's got a huge engine, okay, and he's got you know, the cycling skills you need. So British Cycling said, well, where's he come from? because we've never heard of this Mark Colborne guy, you know? And Neil said, well, he's, uh, he's fell out of the sky. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Literally fell out of the sky. Yeah. And, uh, and British Cycling came and did some evaluation, did some testing, had a look at me on the track. And they said, okay, you know, we'll, uh, we, we'll take a look at you when you lose some weight. Because at the time I was 94 kilograms, you know, it was quite hit. Quite heavy. What are you now? You know, just in comparison. Okay. 83. Okay. So 10-11 kilos more. And um That's your that's your that's your fighting weight? That like 83, 80, 80, 80, 80. I'll tell you a I'll tell you a great story okay. in a second, just for your listeners, okay? okay. Um based upon British cycling and the the small differences. And we'll come back to it in a second. So for twelve months almost, you know, ten months, I went away. I trained almost, you know, five, six days a week. I didn't go back to work, told my director I was going to train for the Paralympics. And he questioned me, raised his eyebrows and he said, Mark, you're, you're 41 years of age. Oh God, everybody was saying that. Yeah. I said, well, John, I said, think about this. Age is just a number on your birthday card. That's all it is. Yeah. You have your cellular health, you know, your biological health. But, you know, in, in my opinion, you also have you know, your um, chronological age, which is what people think about. Mm. But if you have amazing biological age at a cellular level, you know, you, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve, yes. you know, anyway. So British Cycling said, look, go away. You know, you need, need to lose some bulk, muscle bulk, which I did. You know, I lost that sort of six, seven kilos. And um, muscle. all muscle. Yeah, just all muscle. And obviously there's some body fat as well, mm. you know. And then the beginning, the beginning of uh, 2011, I remember, and I was still 18 months from the Paralympics, you know, at this point. So British Cycling said, okay, we'll um, take you on board as what they call a guest rider. And we'll take you to five races to compete in the 10 mile time trial, because I'd had experience racing, you know, in, in, um, in triathlon and half Ironman competition. So I knew how to pace myself, yeah. you know, over that 16 kilometer period, yeah. albeit at, you know, 190 beats per minute. Okay. Or what we call full gas. So after five races, I came back with five medals and British cycling are now thinking, hang on, this guy's training at home in South Wales. He's not under the umbrella of British cycling with the best coaches, the best nutritionists, the best physiologists, you know, in sport. 
So they gave me the opportunity to race in the world championships in Denmark in the, the 10 mile time trial. And I won a silver, which was incredible. All thanks to Neil Smith, you know, who was teaching me, coaching me, mentoring me, you know, Amazing. and, um, and the, the great part of that, that silver medal was that I was 32 seconds behind the gentleman who won gold in Beijing in the 10 mile time trial. Mm. So this guy who was the world champion Paralympic gold medalist from Germany, a gentleman friend of mine now called Mikkel Teuber. So to be 32 seconds behind him after two years of being back on the bike, you know, or less than two years, it just showed British cycling that the potential was going to continue. From that moment on, how long was it till the, till the Olympics? Uh, 12 months. Okay. So September, 2011 okay. to September, 2012. Okay. Okay. August, okay. September. Okay. So British cycling knew, knowing what they do, how good they could get me. Yeah. Yeah. They can see that. They can the potential. see the timeline and potential. Yeah. So they offered me then a place on the world-class program in Manchester. That must've been fun. Arslan, it was a childhood dream. I can imagine. You know, for 30 odd years, I'd loved movement. I'd loved sport, health and well-being. And now I'm actually being paid as a professional athlete yeah. to do what I love. Yes. Okay. It's a, you know, Charlie and the chocolate I factory. Mean, not feeling, just do you know? it. You're like the, one of the best factories in the world, <laughs> in the world yeah, to yeah. produce athletes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so to turn up and have this program for the 12 month period from, you know, September to September. Just quickly for the sense of time. Can, can you tell us very quickly what that looked like? So, it's, it's a working environment. That's the first thing to remember. Okay. But it's a controlled working environment. Mm -hmm. Everything that you're, I wouldn't say told to do, but coached to do is for a reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everything, everything has the athlete's interest at heart mm -hmm. from a holistic perspective, health and safety. Okay. Athlete welfare. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everything is aimed towards getting that athlete into the best shape possible for whatever duration of time. So mm. the games were 10 days, okay? A 10 day period. Mm. So we, you focus on that one moment in time to be the best you can be. To peak, yeah. To peak, yeah. you know, the peak performance, yeah. okay? So all of the overtraining, all of the early nights, the diet, the lifestyle, you know, being told what to eat, when to eat, how much to drink, what time to go to bed, it's for a reason. Mm -hmm. Whereas most human beings or most adults would feel that they're being told mm -hmm. rather than coached. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, and I was very lucky with the coaches. They were all great leaders. Mm -hmm. They had the empathy. They had the perspective. Mm -hmm. They had the compassion, you know. But going back to the question you had about weight. So I joined British Cycling and I was 83 kilos. Okay, 83, 84 kilos. Almost what I am now. And when they did my physiology testing, the nutritionist said to me, the target weight for my race, which is what you said, my fighting weight was 78 kilograms. Wow. I said to this gentleman, whose name was Nigel. I said, how did you work that out? And he said, well, your height, your weight, your bone structure, your skeleton, it, that is what it is. Okay. Your muscle density, and then the amount of body fat. So over the next 12 months, you'll go into a hundred calorie deficit every day over the next 12 months. And that will bring your body fat level down then to where we want you to be, which is about 7%, mm. 7 or 8%. Mm. 
I think just I'll take a moment there to 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 explain to people um, that the athletes you see in the moment in Olympics when they're just on the line about to take off is when they are at their peak, 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 peak. And it takes months, if not years, for them to prepare for that moment. And it's a cycle of, it's not a straight cycle, it's a cycle of ups and downs and mm -hmm. ups and downs and ups and downs to get them there. It's so many things and so many factors and so many um, elements that need to come together to that one moment where they are able to do 100% for, if it's 100%, like the most popular sport, the most popular would be the 100 meter sprint mm -hmm. for them to run for, mm -hmm. you know, now under 10 seconds. It's, mm -hmm. it's insane how much people train and people see the athlete at the moment when they are the least moment where they feel pressure or pain or whatever, because they've been training for so long for that moment. That's the moment to shine now, you know, yeah, it's yeah. not. It, that people think that that's the moment where you're going to do a lot of the work. It's not actually, no. this is, the, no. this is it, all the work is what you've done before. There's an old right. saying in professional sport that training should be hard and racing should be easy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, all the hard work is done. Yeah. So that conversation with the, you know, the British cycling nutritionist to say that, you know, I would be 78 kilograms. And I questioned it. I said, I've not been 78 kilograms for about 20 years. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, of course. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, what do you mean? I know it's coming. He said, <laughs> he said what's your profession? Now, be, me being me, I was very proud at the time. I said, well, I'm, I'm a professional cyclist. He said, congratulations. He said, have a guess what I do for a living. I said, you're the British cycling nutritionist. He said, exactly. He said, I'll tell you what to eat and when to eat. Okay. He said, but don't tell me how to ride the bike because that's not my job. <laughs> yeah. You know, my job yeah. is to get you into the best condition for that period in the games. Yeah. You know, I said, okay, so this is a great part of the story. On the 31st of August, 2012, which was 12 months after, you know, I sort of had my weight and my physiology tested. I stood on the scales that morning for the day of my race and I was 78 kilograms on the money, not 78.1 or 77.10, exactly 78 but kilograms. feeling good, feeling energetic, amazing. not feeling like you've like, cut weight un in an unhealthy way. That's like amazing. a warrior. That's amazing. Because all of the small, all of the small, small differences, the small marginal sustainable gains. change. That's yeah, another yeah. thing I think that viewers should be aware of is that it's that's to change. You're better off in a year changing small incremental changes than try to do these yo-yo diets or, you know, make big differences because that's yeah. not the healthy way of doing it. That process, you know, leading up to the Olympics, you know, and the Paralympics, this, the epic summer of 2012, you know, was just a moment in time, a moment in history that, you know, will never be repeated in my lifetime. And to be part of it was just a very proud moment, a very grateful moment, a very unbelievable moment. And I say this openly now as a speaker, you know, and as a coach, you know, what if I'd listened to my dad? Mm. What if I'd gone back to work? You know, the, the world of cycling would have never have known I existed. Mm -hmm. I would have never had the opportunity to work with the legacy of, you know, London 2012 as an international speaker, having coached and inspired tens of thousands of people, mm. you know, none of that would have happened. 
just through that one decision, mm. you know? So I think to go into London, you know, as, um, as a world champion on the track, cause you know, I, I became a world champion seven months before the games in Los Angeles. And fortunately it was the same week that my dad passed away, which was heartbreaking. You know, it was really heartbreaking, but I guess, you know, I always knew that, you know, he was going to pass away. Maybe not at that moment, you know, a day before the world finals, you know, but has, taking has, has your dad, um, has your dad witnessed your success though? No, no. Apart from joining British cycling, okay. you know, he never saw me win the world championships. Didn't see me, you know, take my gold in London. And, um, and I think the, the important thing for your audience, for your listeners and your viewers, you know, is to, is to do what you love, mm. you know, do what you really enjoy. Um, because that's where you get your joy. That's where you get your satisfaction, Absolutely. you know, and as long as you continue to give a hundred percent, that's the important thing. And going into the Paralympics, you know, working with Professor Steve Peters, you know, the, the author of the Chimp Paradox book, he kept, you know, instilling us, instilling into us to continue to give a hundred percent and accept the outcome. Okay. As long as you do your best, if you succeed, great. If you don't succeed, that's, all, that's also okay. But what's not okay is not giving your best. Not what was his position best, in the, in he the... was the sports psychologist, okay. you know, for, for British cycling, you know, incredible, incredible man, you know, so going into the Paralympics, um, you know, racing in the three kilometer pursuit on the track, because that's where my, my best, um, my best discipline was, you know, um, I took a silver in the 10 mile time trial behind Mikel Teuber. Um, he beat me by 12 seconds, which was heartbreaking, but I gave a hundred percent. So I have to accept the silver, you know, and then winning a silver in the sprint, um, was a, another great moment, but you know, my forte, my better event is the, the three kilometer pursuit or 12 laps of the velodrome, you know, for the, for the audience. And that morning, um, the Chinese rider. Um, who raced before me broke the world record. Mm. So my coach said, well, you know, you have to now break the world record to get into Thank the you. final. <laughs> so, you know, as a team, we broke that world record. And then four hours later in the final, you know, it was time to repeat the process, you know, and then it was like, well, I've got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to give it everything, you know. And, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, when they racked my bike up in the gate, the start gate, and my coach came over to me and he said, are you ready? I said, yep. He said, do this for your dad. And he just walked off. And then the beep started, you know, the countdown. Well, how does that, how know. did that, what, what did you feel when you heard that? Um, a feeling of, a feeling of responsibility to myself, you know, that Whatever I was thinking at that time, it just, it was that pattern interrupt again, where it, oh, it put me into the space where it's personal. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, Simon Sinek, what's your why, yeah. the golden circle. Yes. And as long as you hone in on that feeling, then the emotions of the crowd and the television and the Olympic final, and all of that goes away because now, now it's personal, mm. you know? And when it's personal, you know, you, 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 yeah, you just, you'll go through anything. That race know. in total was how long? Four minutes. Four minutes. Yeah. Heart rate? 202. 
Not, average? Not, average 202. Max, max 202. 202. So probably 190, 192. Because wow. you go from like 120 on the start. Yes. After two laps, you're up to 165. Yeah. And then incrementally, it just goes up and up until you hit lactic threshold. Yes. Just normally around sort of two and a half minutes. And then you hold on for, for dear life. You know, it's just, it's a pain game. Yeah as we call it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and then the last four laps then around 202. Um, because the pain doesn't get any more. It doesn't increase. Yeah. It gets to that. Oh my gosh, this is hurting. Yeah. Okay. And then you're fighting against physicality. You're fighting against inertia, gravity, yeah. rather than, um, being able to pedal any faster because yeah. there is no more. Yes. Basically, yes. you know, there's yeah, no the more. Threshold, yeah. You've hit your threshold, threshold yeah. and then you have to start the the mind game of how long you can hold on before your mind gives up. Yes. Yes. Because your mind will give up before your body, yeah. believe it yeah. or not, yeah. you know. Yeah. And in my head, I kept thinking, this is mine. This is mine. This is mine. Okay. And just metronomically kept going and going and going. And with two laps to go, I came around the, the velodrome corner, I looked up the track and the rider's in front of me. You know, my opposite rider in the final, this Chinese chap is on the track. He's 50, 60 meters in front of me. Mm. So my inner voice says, you've won. You just need to stay upright. Mm. You know, you just need to stay upright for another two laps. Mm. Keep maintaining the pain because that was what it was. And I'll never forget crossing the start finish line and looking up at the scoreboard and just seeing two letters, WR, world record. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've done it again. Until you saw it on the screen, you had no idea, like no from idea. your watch or anything or no, nothing. No, there's, there's no computer, there's no timing. There's nothing, okay. There's nothing. Okay, you know. clean. Yeah, pure. pure. Yeah, just you and the bike. That's fucking crazy. It's amazing, man. Yeah, it's amazing. And even to this day, you know, I talk about the pain threshold and the human body is an incredible machine where if you learn to manage, you know, the, the feelings, you can continue to push way past the boundaries that your normal mindset would say, stop, mm. stop, this is hurting, but that's okay. Mm. It's meant to hurt. Mm. That's your body's defense mechanism mm. to tell you you're moving into maximum, mm. you know? Um, and sometimes people go beyond it, you know, if, and, and specifically because their body's not in a state of fitness or strength to cope. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But in my case, you know, all the testing we've done in British cycling in the lab, you know, all of the testing with the heart rate testing, the blood lactic threshold testing, my coach said, you know, you're in exactly the right place where I want you mm -hmm. to be. So to, you know, sit here today, you know, as a, as a very proud Paralympic gold Amazing. medalist. But I think for me, it's the history, you know, the history of the, the Olympic movement, certainly the history of the Paralympic movement, you know, and if people want to Google, you know, the Paralympic logo, which is called the Agitos and the Agitos has a, you know, has three swooshes, you know, and the reason why it has three swooshes as the logo is that the logo was born out of the Greek goddess of victory and her name was Nike, mm. hence the brand. Mm. So the three, um, the three messages for the three uh, swooshes 
which is the ethos of the Paralympic movement, is talent, ambition, and determination, which mm. is the whole ethos of the Paralympic movement. You know, mm. for somebody like me, becoming disabled at the age of 40, you know. Um, so yeah, you know, I sit here a very, very proud Paralympic champion indeed. Um, and even now, you know, 13 years on from my accident, 10 years on from London 2012, still coaching and teaching people how to inspire themselves, you know, because if you can inspire yourself every day, you can lead, you know, an incredible fulfilling life. So yeah, it is a habitual mindset. And I say this just to start to finish and wrap up the, the podcast is, and this is a question for your listeners, for your audience. If you had a $10 million racehorse, okay, and it's yours, somebody, somebody's given it to you, would you feed it junk food on a daily basis? Would you keep it up till 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning and, and you know, ensure it survives on three or four hours sleep? Would you, would you, you know, make it drink alcohol or, or substances, you know, or tobacco, okay? Would you? The answer is probably no. Mm -hmm. So why do we, you know, f force feed, you know, this, this human body that why do you we think? have? I, I think it's a feeling, it, there's many factors, but there's a feeling of a sense of wanting joy and I use the word joy openly in many different areas okay and you and I know this that when you're in touch with yourself you don't need those external you know joys okay or experiences that you know are bad for you you don't need them because you're at peace and at one with yourself Beautiful. you know thank you that was a very nice concise way of putting it absolutely final question um since you you got into it what does uh what does joy mean to you if you would define joy um in as short as possible what would that be for you personally i mean this is yeah, not a yeah. philosophical yeah, question yeah. i want to know i, for I you. think the one thing i've identified over you know my 52 years of being alive is what i like and what i don't like okay i used to drink alcohol a long time ago i used to eat not necessarily junk food, but unhealthy food, okay? And the feeling I had for that evening of eating whatever and drinking whatever was a very short kick, mm. a very short buzz, mm. a very short feeling of excitement mm. to then feel and then look, you know, unhealthy and feel unhealthy for days. Mm. So there's a trade-off. Of course. You know, there's a trade-off, quick fix versus longevity of looking and feeling unhealthy. Yes. And it was a decision that I made to myself when I said, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I've tried it, mm. but I didn't like it. Mm. Okay. And my late father always instilled into me when I was a kid, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for, because when it arrives, it may not be what you thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. You know? So I've made that habitual decision now to, you know, eat healthy. You know, I go out for meals with friends and colleagues and clients, okay? But I'm the, I'm the one person who takes the longest to look at the menu because I want to know what I'm putting in my body is good for me. Yes, I'm going to enjoy it, 
but I want to know, is it good for me? Okay. And, and that's a choice, you know, as Aristotle once said, excellence is not an act. It's a habit. It's a habit. Yeah. So if you make those choices in your life habitual, you know, it, it then becomes easy. And you're saying joy is at the end of that. I think for me personally, yeah. you know, I, I can wake up now every day with a clear head, no hangover. Okay. Um, I, I suppose I'm, I'm happy is the word I'll use. Maybe proud is the word I'm thinking, if I'm honest, mm. of how I look, how I feel, you know, the work I'm doing as part of my legacy, you know, as, as a proud coach, as a proud Paralympian, um, I suppose as an ambassador of, of a healthy living, mm. you know, and if people don't want that, that's fine. Yeah. That's all okay. Yes. Yes. That's their choice. But for those people that want me to help and support and solve their challenges, I'm happy to, you know, provide that service, you know? So uh, segueing into that and to, 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 uh, to summarize and to close the podcast for today, where can people find you? What are you involved in right now? I mean, you just gave me the merch that you just uh, received, which I'm very happy to, 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 to take from you and definitely will use. Um, tell me where people can find you. What are you doing right now? Um, you speak about coaching, you speak about the cycling community. If you can quickly talk about that, yeah, just so yeah. people know where they can reach out to you. Yeah. So, you know, my, my website is markcolbone.com. Okay. Um, can you spell that? Yep. So M-A-R-K. C O L B O U R N E dot okay. com. Okay. Um, we have a brand new website being launched now on the 10th of October, okay. you know, in Dubai. Congratulations. And thank you. And the reason for bringing my business here was to promote that health and well being lifestyle that I guess, you know, has, has definitely worked for me. Okay. You know, and that's in, in all areas of life coaching, cycling coaching, leadership coaching online courses, webinars, obviously, you know, conference speaking. So it's, um, it's an array of services and offerings, you know, that is part of my legacy, you know? And I think just for me to close, I'll never forget one of the psychologists when I did the, you know, exit interview from professional sport. And after we filled out the, the form, he said to me, he said, I've got one more question for you, you know, off the record. I said, okay, fire away. He said, I'd like to know, what would you like written on your headstone? I said, okay, I've not really thought that far ahead. He said, I'll give you a minute to think about the answer. And I said, well, I know what I would like written on my headstone. The words, I know I made a difference. You know, because the art of contribution and helping other people is a gift, mm. you know. And, and that's what I bring to the Middle East. That's what I bring to, you know, Dubai is that opportunity to help other people to, you know, to help them to achieve their dreams and their aspirations, mm. you know. And that's, that's my legacy, you know. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming to Dubai. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for being my friend. Thank you. Uh, uh, Likewise. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I'll see you again for sure. And 
I really appreciate you coming on. Thank my you so pleasure. Much. Thank, you. Thank you very much, my friend. Thank you. Good luck, everybody. Thank you.